What's up, brother? And welcome to the Becoming Kings podcast. I'm Johnny King, and I'm a life enthusiast, growth mentor, and men's lifestyle fulfillment coach. I've dedicated my life to helping men who feel like they're just not living up to their full potential to level up and become the king of their kingdoms. So whether you've been feeling stuck or numb or extremely angry with not living up to your greatest potential in any area of your life, then I'll be in your ears every week dropping some truly transformative episodes to help you become a man that you're proud to be. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. Hey, what's going on? It's Johnny King. Welcome to another episode of the Becoming Kings podcast. I am honored to have in the house the man, the myth, the legend, where it all began for me, my old man, Herbert King. Hey, Dad. Hi, how are you doing, John? I'm doing so good. Thanks for inviting me. Lloyd Herbert King Jr., officially, best name ever. My middle name is Lloyd, so thanks for avoiding the... The rest for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. I could have been the, the third, I guess, Herb, right? Herb the third. Herb the third. <clears throat> we were just chatting, uh, talking about life and love and luxury. Uh, I kind of made that up, actually. But we're just talking about, uh, I recently was in New York City and just loving the city. And I was just telling him about it. And he was telling me about... Uh, you know, the origins of business and your desire to want to, to get here as quickly as you could. Didn't you didn't you tell me that you left school and you drove right out here when you graduated? Almost. I stopped in Minneapolis where, was, where home was and packed my car and uh, headed headed out to, to New York right away within two days of graduation. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get here. What was the allure? Um, I'd been here with my parents a couple of different times, and uh, I just took an immediate liking to the city. I just loved the uh, the excitement. I just felt felt like it was the the spot for opportunity. There was probably more opportunity in my my thought at that time in New York than there in Minneapolis. Mm. Um, so I, I couldn't wait to get to New York and go to work. I, I couldn't wait to get out of school to go to work, for that matter. What what was it? I mean, you grew up. We've talked about this before, but you grew up poor. Well, I guess that's Ish. by definition. I don't think we were but poor by definition, but poor in the sense that uh, my dad worked three jobs. Um, there was always, well, there were seven of us that he had to feed, and so he was working very hard, but it was always hand to mouth. We never knew when the next paycheck was going to come from. He had a, a business of his own for many years, and it never quite paid the bills. Um, you know, I went to school on grants and loans. They they made little or no contribution to that, other than financial and uh, I mean, uh, other than moral support. They right. wanted me to go to college, right. but uh, it was tough, and right. I couldn't wait to get to New York and change change the paradigm. I wanted to see what I could do. But you wanted to make some good money. You wanted to get a good job, all that good stuff, right? But your very first job here in New York was what? I went to work for a bank, and it was through a friend that we got the. Uh, the job opportunity, so I pitched the job, and it was in a training program for six months. Um, let me put it this way: I was in a training program that was probably multiple years, but I quit after six months because I realized <laughs> I didn't want to be a banker. Yeah, it was too boring. I needed to be more out with the the public in sales and marketing. Mm. So after that, you quit. What'd you go do? To, 
I went to a, a newspaper and I started selling advertising space. So that was the first introduction for me to the advertising market. And uh, it wasn't a, success, a very successful newspaper, so it was very difficult to sell. But I, I got into the, I understood the structure of selling space to advertisers within an ad agency who represented the customer. It was after that that you started working for Wendy's. For who? Wendy's. Wendy's? Yeah, over the, the Frosty Machine, right? You just... You my, think, dad, my dad loves the Frosty Machine, just like me. Just like the, uh, the McDonald's guy, the inventor. <laughs> what's his name? Coke? Uh, Roy Coke? Kroc. Kroc. Roy Kroc. Ray right. Kroc, yeah. Ray Kroc, yeah. Yeah, you wish. Love that movie. You do love Frosties and... I do. Of course I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do I. Uh, But I made that up. Sorry about that. And then after that... Yeah, after I was there, I I stayed there about six months, and I knew that wasn't a right fit. So I quit my job. I got engaged, um, which doesn't make sense because I had no job at the time, (laughs) which was frustrating to my to-be mother-in-law because her friends would say, well, what does Herb do in New York? And she'd have to say, well, he's... Looking for a new opportunity. <laughs> so it was not a great time to have to pr- promote me as a new potential son-in-law. Right. But I, I waited for about four months, and I during that period I interviewed like crazy. And I ended up in syndication for Hearst newspapers, and I sold uh, to the newspapers syndication filler material, which are made up of like comic strips, for one, uh, political columns, uh, hints to Heloise at the time, uh, filler material that goes into the local newspapers all over the country, and they license it so they might charge fifteen dollars per per week for a p- particular um, column. And but then you go to the Boston Globe or you went to the uh, Chicago Times Tribune or whatever. The the rates were you know fifteen thousand dollars or maybe twenty five thousand dollars per week. So it added up pretty fast. But I had all of New England and I traveled to every newspaper. Um, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and all of New England. And it was an interesting opportunity, and I did that for about two years. Is that before or after you did all the interviews? That was before, and the interviews that I got to get into broadcasting you're referring to, those occurred during the period while I was working for Hearst. So I would be, periodically, I'd be calling in and saying, you know, I'm going to be a little late because I've got a doctor's appointment, or I have a dental appointment, or I have whatever appointment, and I'd do it the interviews to get into broadcasting at lunch and after work. And Explain that a little bit, just because I think it's it's interesting that, you, and I didn't time it by that by any means, but I think we both wrote our books <laughs> when we were 42. Yeah. That's how old I am. Uh-huh. Did you write your book in your early 40s? Um, it would have been, yeah, mm-hmm. right. It was 41, no. 42. Was that right? The interviewing book? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I thought you quit your job at 40. and you moved... Uh, to St. Louis. Right. And, and when I was 40. When you are 40. Yep. But you did all the interviews and wrote your book. You did your interviews, but you didn't write your book until much later? Right. Uh, After okay. my career in New York. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. So when I was um, in Don't, New York... Ex- yeah, explain that kind of that process, because yeah, I think have, that's kind of a cool process. We have some friends that were very sweet to us, older friends that kind of mentored me. He, he was the ad agency president of um, a large firm on Fifth Avenue, and... They were church friends, and they kind of took a liking to Sally and me. And as a result, um, the wife said to her husband one time, she said, what was it that you said would be such a good career if you hadn't gotten into advertising? And he said, oh, broadcast sales. 
And she said, well, tell Herb about that. So he told me a little bit about it. And then I investigated, and I found out that they paid double what the, what I was earning in newspaper. Mm. So that was all I needed. I, it was like a bull <laughs> in a can- china shop. I was a horse being let uh, let out of the gate. You know, right. I couldn't wait to get get into it. So he told me a little bit. He put me onto his uh, media director, and she gave me a little bit of insights as to what it was, and she gave me some of the the ratings books that I could study and some magazines that I might want to subscribe to, which I did, of course, all of that. And I started teaching myself the uh, the industry. Uh, at the same time, he interviewed. He introduced me to a guy that taught me how to interview. Mm-hmm. And this was a like a 30-year-old multimillionaire who owned his own ad, ad agency. And he'd worked for Metro Media. And the guy told me, he said, interview with all the companies you don't want to work for until you're consistently getting offers. Once you consistently get offers, then start to go after the targeted companies you want to work for. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. But it took me 18 months. I did 43 interviews before I got consistent offers. After I got consistent offers, I did 11 and secured the job that I wanted. And they doubled my salary. So back then, I was working for $18,000 a year in newspaper. And I got 36000 the first year in broadcasting, and then never looked back. It was paid very well. Mm-hmm. So I was really going after a lifestyle, dependent upon um, earning enough money to support it. So that's what uh, finally got me into the broadcast business. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> and you wrote a book eventually. I wrote the book about interviewing, and uh, basically that same strategy, that you become a professional interviewer. So you look the part, you act the part, you speak the part, and... Uh, I love this one This one instance, you'll get a kick out of this. The uh, gatekeeper at the company I wanted to work for would not interview me. He would not see me. Yeah. And so I, I call him periodically and ask for an interview. And he said, no, go to the Midwest, get some experience, go to Evansville, go to the Minneapolis, go someplace, get a job, call me in three or four years after you get some experience, then I'll see you. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to wait for this. This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I told him I could sell anything. I said, if you want me to sell toothbrushes tomorrow, I'll sell toothbrushes. I can sell anything you've got. I want this job. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to see you. So I thought, what am I going to do? So I called him back and I said, you know what? I'm going to call you every single week until you see me. And I'm not going to stop. <laughs> because I knew they wanted people that would not quit, that were showed perseverance yeah. and determination. And I'd learned that during the 43 interviews. The 43 interviews actually were informational interviews. And I was learning all about the company I wanted to work for, their perception of them, and all the companies out in the, in the industry. Mm. So these guys would spend an hour with me interviewing me, and I'd learn from them. So I had 43 hours of interve- in, informational interviewing that taught me a lot about what to, what to expect. So when he turned me down, I said, I call him every week. He said, well, you know, that's up to you if you want to do it. <laughs> so sure enough, after like eight weeks, six, seven weeks, I guess it was, he actually said, you know, come on in. So the story goes, as I recall it, um, I sat down and I started talking to him right away because I knew exactly what he wanted to hear. And then at the end of it, like 15 minutes after I finished, in 15 minutes, he says, you know, this is an interesting interview. I said, why is that? He said, I never had to ask you a question. I said, well, yes, I've got a question for you. And I, I said to him, who else should I see? Mm-hmm. Assuming that he was going to hire me. <laughs> so 
He said, well, interestingly enough, uh, Chips, Barbie's right around the corner. So he introduced me to Chips, who ultimately became my boss. And then I subsequently, over the, like, the next four or five months, I had interviews in Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Boston, and back in New York. And after I did all those interviews, um, they, they ultimately gave me an interview, uh, an opportunity. But that's another story I'll tell you. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> so the 43 interviews that you initially did, were they all in that broadcasting niche? Yes, in the representative niche. These are, I should explain, I'm sorry. These are representative firms that are hired by the TV stations to represent them in New York and around the country to sell their space, their time, to any, like Colgate Palmolive. If they want to advertise Colgate toothpaste, yeah. and, they, and they want to do it in Knoxville, Tennessee, they called the three stations back in the day. And each one of those stations had a rep, and the three reps would appear with the demographics and the cost per thousands. And we'd negotiate to get the, the majority of the 18 to 49 women who had the, basically the, um, the purses to open up and buy the products. Um, they, they were the influencers at the time. And... Um, I think today it's still women 25 to 54 that's the key demographic. But we negotiate to get the majority of the business and mm. get, get it for our stations. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, it was lots of fun. You did all that and then you eventually wrote a book that kind of taught that whole process. Yeah, and part of the book, um, although it's no longer available, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the Smithsonian now. Um, Could be available. It could we, be. We, we can put it it's on. It's not very good. Amazon. It's not very good. It's better just to take this word of mouth story. <laughs> yeah. Much, much more succinct too. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing was when I got to the point, I had ten interviews, and I was in front of the president of the company, and I knew I was going to get the job, mm -hmm. and I froze up because I realized that if I got this job, it was going to change my life because this company was off to the races, yeah. and I was gonna double my income, and 36,000 was just gonna be in the rear view mirror, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm making 50, 60,000 or more. So I, I froze up and I couldn't get through that interview. I had a really difficult time and I left without the job. And I knew he was gonna offer me a job because they're never gonna take the time of the president to interview somebody if they're not gonna offer the job. And I completely blew it. Mm. So the lesson I learned here was more about perseverance because I went home and I was kicking myself and I was feeling like a victim. Yeah. And um, I was horrible to live with that week because I thought I'd blown 18 months of investment of making this happen. Yeah. And I was reading the magazine, broadcast magazine that I'd subscribed to to keep teaching myself the industry. And that particular issue that week said 1972-73 best spot television budget year ever. So I'm looking at this and I'm reading this article, it's like three or four pages long, and it was detailing why the budgets were gonna be so much better and they're gonna be expanding everything. And I thought, well, there's there probably 10 good reasons right here that they should hire me. So then mm -hmm. I realized I need to Xerox them at the time, make copies, and I made copies for the uh, 10 people that I'd seen, and I highlighted in yellow all these reasons and I numbered them on each one. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote on there in the front, on the front of the page, I said, Dear Mike, here are 10 good reasons why you need to hire a new, young, aggressive salesman. Looking forward to hearing back from you again soon. Mm -hmm. And I sent that to all the people on Friday. They got it on a Monday back in the day. And um, I got a call from the secretary again that Monday afternoon, and she set up a Tuesday appointment. I went in and I pitched my heart out 
this time not being impressed by the opportunity, but really realizing it was up to me to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And he ultimately offered me the job. And I, I went up back to the Hearst people. Yeah. My boss was 40 years old. Mm. He was making like $25,000 a year. I was making 18. He's making like 25, 30, I guess it was. And he said, how much are they going to pay you? I said, 36. He said, you better take it. <laughs> he said, you better take it and run. Yeah. He was so envious because I was half his age. And I was going to, you know, I was probably 23 at the time, 24, I guess it yeah, was. Yeah. And the interesting thing was I, I knew so much about all these other uh, representative firms. But what I missed on this one was that the employees had just bought out the company the week before I got there, hmm. which meant I got stock for every year I worked there. And it was an ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Program. So when I left... 15 years later, I had a million dollars of cash in my pocket mm-hmm. as a result of getting hired at the right company. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that was luck. Part of it, I don't know if it was luck or if it's Right time and right strategic. place. Yeah, yeah, it was right time, right place. But uh, there, there are lots of lessons to be learned in that uh, scenario. Yeah, it's not luck because you clearly did, like you said, 18 months, 24 months worth of due diligence and perseverance to get the, the interviews. You, you botched the big one, still came back, Got it. You fought for it, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I wouldn't call that luck at all. No, I suppose not. I'd say that's you know the fruits of your, yeah. Your but I'm grateful the employees had had the initiative, the smarts to buy the company from the owner. Yeah, that was pretty incredible at the time. No other firm was doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we had a hundred employees doing about a hundred million in sales at the time I joined the company. When I left 15 years later, we had a thousand employees doing a billion dollars in sales. Wow. And that was in 87. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot of money for revenue for a <laughs> yeah. company. We had offices all over the country. Yeah. And I'd worked my way up. I was one of the top guys in the division, most profitable division. And we had 300 salespeople around the country, 24, 20, 22 offices, 24 managers. Wow. And they all reported to me for budgeting. I was in charge of operations for all the outside offices. Tell that story that you told me previously about, you know, when you were you know, new man in, low man on the totem pole before you were managing all those people <laughs> and you had that uh, particular woman and how you kind of oh. kind of earned all of the, the guys. You became one Respect. of the guys. Yeah, when I first got on board, um, I was in the training division, training department for like six weeks. And when we uh, finished, I was um, covering for everybody. And then they said to the, the, my boss, Chip, said to all the guys, you know, Herb needs a list of agencies to call on. What agencies do you want to give him? So everybody made a contribution. Of course, what are they going to give me, the real, most profitable ones or the, the horrible ones? The shitty ones. So yeah. I got all the shit list. Yeah. So the first phone call comes in from one of the shit list agencies <laughs> who happened to be one of the time-buying or the time-buying agency for Bill Clinton, Clinton's uh, political uh uh, you know, presidency mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. and was owned by a woman. She and a couple partners, and she was known as a royal bitch. She was <laughs> incredibly nasty, yeah. and um, she was good at her, good at her job because she'd beat up everybody. Yeah, that was just her mo. And that I mean, that's the, pretty much the environment you you worked in. They beat you up to get the sales, mm-hmm. the, the budgets down, the cost down. So I got her on the phone. And she gets me on the phone, and she said, who is this? And I said, Herb King. And so she says, oh, my God, how long have you been at Cats? And so then I said, well, I've been here six weeks. And she said, God damn it, I'm not going to hire, or I'm not going to train another fucking 
cat salesman. Yeah. Who the hell is your boss? Yeah. And I said, Dave Allen. And so she said, let me speak to Dave. So I passed her down to Dave. And I can hear him in the distance saying, come on, Marie. Maria, give him a break. He's a new young kid. Everybody has to have a place to start. Yeah. You did, I did, we all do. Give him a chance. So <clears throat> at this point, all the salesmen in the office are looking at me because they don't understand me. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't swear. I come from a church school in the Midwest. Yeah. I'm not a New Yorker. I don't, I'm not Italian. I'm not German. I'm not Catholic. I'm so not how black. Are you even there? Like, yeah, I'm the token wasp on the team. Yeah. And I haven't earned my wings. So they're listening to me on the phone call. I took the phone call at my secretary's desk, so I'm out, out kind of in the center of it. <clears throat> so by then, all the guys <clears throat> are hovering at their doors, and they're standing in their doorways <laughs> listening to this call. And so she gets me on the phone, and she said, take this down. She starts rattling off all these television markets and all the demographics and this financial um, budget goals for yeah. each market. Yeah. And then she slams the phone down. And I'm... I'm holding the phone and she's gone and I don't know what to say and I'm thinking what do I do now and so everybody's watching me and I didn't want to be embarrassed so I said Maria I have one more thing to say I just want to say don't ever give me this much shit again or I'm gonna have we'll have it out at your desk and I slammed the phone down and so then all the guys and the, they all start they start clapping their hands slowly and I'm thinking Oh, good. Well, then it all changed. And that from that moment on, I was one of the one of the team members. That's I was like my from, wings. That's like from a movie or something. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah. It really was incredible. Yeah. Don't give me any more shit. And I slammed the phone down. <laughs> Even though she wasn't there. She was gone. She was gone. She'd <laughs> yeah. already made her point. Yeah. Oh, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> well, in, in uh, you know, along the same vein, but but different topics somewhat too. Like working in a all male. Pretty much all male. It was at the time. Industry at the time, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, being in the closet, gay. Mm -hmm. Being married. Yeah. You know, all that stuff you said. Like I was asking you before we started recording, and I've asked you plenty of times before. Like, what was life like, kind of quote unquote, in hiding? Um, and you said, oh, you know, it just was it. It just it was what it was, right? You didn't. Yeah. You didn't give it like you didn't know that even being out was an option because there wasn't, it wasn't really a, wasn't. It option. wasn't an option. I I mean I was married. I made the commitment. She was my best friend. We both discussed it before we got married. Yeah. It never occurred to me to ever come out or ever get divorced. So it was what it was. Yeah. But you know, in hindsight, I have lots of lots of thoughts. Such as. Well. Well, I mean, you you talked about it one time, you said, with Mom. Yeah. And I believe Mom probably didn't fully believe you or thought that maybe her love would be like... She could heal me, whatever yeah. the case may be. Yeah, yeah. Help me find my way. Right. You know, um, and I, you know, for some people that might have been true. I, you know, I have no idea. Everybody's journey is slightly different. Yeah. Um, in my particular case, you know, we were engaged once, and then I told her, and then we got unengaged. Because I, I said I just can't do this. Because I knew it wasn't a, it was instinctively I knew it wasn't the right idea. Yeah. But then the more we talked, we never liked to be apart. We liked to do everything together. Yeah. Anytime we were apart, we're doing something fun. We always were wishing the other person was there. So ultimately, we decided to get married. Well, people often say like, "Oh, I want to marry my best friend," and you guys were yeah, legit. We were best friends. Best friends. Yeah. Absolutely. She was a hoot. She was so much fun. We we always had great times together. Well, she was a good audience for your. 
for my humor. For your stand-up comedy. <laughs> for my stand-up comedy, <laughs> I suppose. I suppose, uh, although I don't think I made her laugh as much as she wished I had <laughs> in the long run. Right. But um, so, yeah, I, 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 that was from the time I was like eight or nine, I guess 10 or 12 years old. That's when I noticed I was different. And I started hiding. This one boy said to me, I think I was 12 years old at the time, he said, you carry your books like a girl. And I took those books off. I was holding them on my chest mm -hmm. as I'm going to school. And I moved them down to my hip like all the other boys. And from that moment on, I hid. That was, I knew, I knew that moment I was hiding. Mm. And I was never honest. Mm. So funny. Yeah. I, I, I thought about that, but I guess I, I see that in movies too. Like girls would hold their books on their chest and oh, boys yeah. would hold their books on their head. Like in Greece, the yeah. movie Greece. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of when you started started hiding and it didn't necessarily just something this was before the gay rights movement yep right yep oh so yeah there wasn't even really like you said a thought to coming out you said even in new york weren't there uh gays being hung or killed or shot oh, all over the country all over the country yep, yep. Persecuted. jailed persecuted yeah abused yeah. yep yeah lots so, of prejudice so you were scared about coming out obviously you know it didn't really it didn't occur to me yeah it just, I mean, I, and I never had time to think about it, to tell you the truth. Yeah. It, uh, coming out wasn't an option because I made my commitment to Sally. and um, So it wouldn't eat, it wouldn't eat at you? It wasn't me? something. It wasn't eating at you? Like, oh, no, like not you at like, all. You just were kind of head down, Let focusing me, on work. You know, that's an interesting point. Was it eating at me? In retrospect, I look back, and I gained a lot of weight probably back in the, uh, it would have been... Uh, 80s, I guess it was. No, 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 90s. It was in the 90s. I gained a lot of weight. And I think at that point, that was an expression of my unhappiness. And that part of the unhappiness was my frustration with my business, because by then I had started, started a new business on my own, mm -hmm. and the fear of losing everything um, and finding solace in comfort food. So it wasn't eating you. But it was you affecting were it. Yeah. 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 It was affecting me. It was affecting me. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And affecting your probably well, I wasn't relationship honest. with mom. Yeah, the relationship with mom was deteriorating as far as part of our life, sexual life. Yeah. Um, and it was very hard in in those instances in the in the family trying to keep things uh, as normal as possible. At the same time, I wasn't ever going to leave. It never, ever occurred to me to yeah. divorce. Yeah. So obviously, with more and more kids, more and more you know mounting financial pressures, right, mm -hmm. and then also less and less time probably to hang out with your best friend. Things were. You just found yourself, you guys, you know. Well, we both gained a lot of weight. I think we we're both yeah, unhappy because we weren't a, have expect you know we <clears> didn't expect to find ourselves in that position. That was. You know, yeah. we had the five kids. She got so much love from all you kids. She was a great mom, an yeah, amazing she woman. She was. She totally changed my life in marvelous ways, mm -hmm. in such positive ways because of her faith and her devotion, her her perseverance and courage too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine having one, two, three, four, five kids. You know, um, hard enough having worked with women for eight years. You know, hard enough to get your body back to where you want it after one. Right. Not to mention five kids. Right. Uh, you were working a lot. Um, when when we did all get together, a lot of times it was over food or whatnot. Right? right. Not to mention this is around the time of the 70s and 80s and 90s when boxed processed foods were coming out. Yep. All the 
<clears throat> all of the uh, yeah all nutrition the was changing. Nutrition was pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, and so that probably didn't help to the weight gain or to each of your your health. No, right? and you know at the time fitness was not part of our life. Uh, we we weren't aware of fitness. Um, she was working you know as a five as a mom to five children mm-hmm. and a volunteer at school. She was working, you know, twenty four seven. Whenever we take a trip, she would pack for everybody. She'd do, you know, take care of any everything and yeah. every anything. Yeah. You know, she made all the plans um, uh, socially. All I did was pay the, ch- you know, paid the check. I, of course, I had twenty four seven job on my mind yeah. all the time. Yeah. So our two our two worlds were separate, but they were parallel, mm-hmm. and they were both going through a lot of frustration. At the same time, fear and frustration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It must have been, I mean, again, you guys must have been both. And I think that's something that I, when you came out to me, I think that was one of the, the initial thoughts is that I always kind of uh, made mom to be out like the victim and you were the villain. Yeah. And then when you came out, I'm like, oh, no, like you guys probably were both starving emotionally yeah for connection and love and romance for and all the things that we you know all human beings all adults want and all kids i should just say human beings i, th- I think as i know. was coming out i probably didn't make it clear and i i didn't think this through but we we mutually made the commitment to be together yeah. she knew the facts and <clears throat> she was willing to make the sacrifice or take the risk i should say yeah as well as i was and um it wasn't one person's choice. Yeah. It wasn't my choice. We did this together because we, we got unengaged the first time because of it, thought it through, and then came back together and decided to go together yeah. into the future. Yeah. And now as I look back, there are no regrets. Yeah. Absolutely no regrets. She yeah. was an amazing woman. She as a uh, she was really like my business coach yeah. because her dad was a very successful salesman himself and um, executive. So she... She knew everything about my business, and she knew names, and she understood personalities from my descriptions, and she would give me good insight, and she was a great sounding board. So, right. you know, that behind every successful guy, they say there's a successful woman. Yeah. Well, that's exactly, in my case, the case, uh, your mother was just like that. Yeah, I mean, she was CEO of running our family, which I think is probably one of As the... her mother was of her family. Yeah. As I look back one on One of, if not the most difficult... <laughs> roles and jobs to to run is huge uh kind of a selfless it's very so place because you don't yeah. get a whole lot of uh recognition you know at least at work you get promotions you get like you know it's like man i can't i having like i said dated you know that's a that's several, an interesting point several single moms they get no <laughs> recognition yeah they don't you know get it's any, interesting like, a guy at the yeah. office can see a promotion or he can see increased revenue he can see increased profits yeah. he can see increased numbers of employees more square footage of manufacturing. Yeah. You know, he can measure his success. Yes. A woman doesn't have that opportunity as a, a full-time mom. She can't, she probably doesn't sit down and say, well, I did this, this, and this, and yeah. I got, you know, somebody said thank you for this, and I um, made a contribution to the Mother's Club, and they did give me an award for this. She doesn't do that. Yeah. It's yeah. not, and actually that's not her temperament. It wasn't Sally's temperament. I shouldn't say for all women, but in Casey, Sally's case, being an at-home mom, Yeah. Her, her really, her satisfaction came from watching each one of you children achieve more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously the, the, the shame of her having passed away so young. Oh, yeah. She missed 
that validation yeah. over and over and over the again. fruits of her hard labor yeah um but having said that i think coming back around to to you know that moment a couple years after mom passed away you had lost you know 120 pounds right, right. around yep. that time yep um so which was pretty cool to see and see that you know we kind of gained back well, we lost mom and lost half of you, you know, <laughs> Well, <laughs> in 120 pounds. I lost the weight thanks to all of you kids. Yeah, it was definitely helpful, but you were motivated, you know. I was motivated, but it was through your education and love of uh, how to be more fit, eat nutrition, you know, change my nutrition. Um, I think that's choices. the how, but your why still had more to do with, like I, I asked you before around that time, which is kind of what led me to like, starting my own business and working with people is like you're like what what person would love me at 320 pounds you know right it's still driven towards making yourself uh it's, it's marketing right like we all do what we can to make ourselves improve your package <laughs> yeah, improve your yeah. package uh yeah. quote unquote as they say yeah you know the bigger the pack what do they say with the bigger the package what finish that I don't know what it is. I don't know. I was just making that up, too. Um, I thought it was going to be a good gay joke. Well, big hands, big feet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but well, how how was it in... I mean, there had to have been a lot of fear, because obviously when you told me, when you came out, when you actually told me you were in tears, you know, yeah. there just must have been a lot of fear. And then, you know, you've had friends stick by you, other friends kind of divorce you as a result. Like, how's that been? Oh, there was a lot of judgment. I'm sure, you know... The, it was interesting because I at first I wanted to keep it very quiet, which I asked each one of the kids to do. Yeah. And then I, but knowing in my heart that eventually I was going to have to tell more people, right. or that it would leak out, and right. sure enough, it did, and then it spread like wildfire amongst the, the church people that we knew and loved, as well as all the parents of the school. It was like a virus. Friends. It was like a virus. It was like a virus. Oh, it was like a new variant. It was like a crazy variant. It just took over the conversation. A gay variant, yeah. It was a gay kid. Did you hear variant. Herb King is gay? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we had been major donors at the school and the church and so forth, and it did shake shake everybody up. But what you shook them up was... Pardon me? Major boners? I don't know what you're saying. You said major donors. Donors, oh, major geez. donors. Let's see, this whole thing's taking It's out. gay, yeah. yeah you're it's, it's, gay now. Just keep it gay, Dad. Keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it gay, <laughs> as they say in the producers. Yeah. But going you back you donors, know, th yeah. three years before, when your mother passed on, that was, you know, she was 61 years old. Yeah. And that kind of rocked our world for all of us and the church community and the school community. For sure. Everybody loved her. She had a huge, huge uh, celebration of life service for her. How many people were there? I don't even remember. Over 400 people. Seeing through my tears, I couldn't see. Almost more more than 400 people. I saw the place was packed. Yeah, it was. Yeah. She had touched so many lives. Yeah. In such amazing ways, uh, as I said. Um, but then three years later, having gone through some minor depression I didn't even know I was going through, mm. uh, I, I finally realized that I had to take a stand. Um, I dated two women. Um, I'd... I I only knew to be hetero, right? Appearing hetero, right? And then I, for me to accept the fact that I was gay and come out midlife was a big hurdle. Oh my gosh! I just recently read a book by <clears throat> um, what's his name Olson. Um, this one, yeah. What was finally, it? finally out. Yeah. Um, and his name is Lauren Olson, and Lauren Olson is a psychologist, and he talks all about his coming out. And, you know, the fear that you, 
that you, you face at the time you come out is really not, it's not so much about self, it's about your children, your family, your wife, your community, mm. your influencers, and the people that you, um, you know, that you, you lead at the office. I was concerned about my employees. I had 100 employees. I didn't know what their uh, reaction would be. Of course, all the salespeople that we worked with throughout the country at the time, um, I didn't know what their position was going to be. And ultimately, I realized it wasn't about the fear of my the reaction of their judgment and their reaction to my coming out. It was really all about me mm-hmm. having to be I chose to be honest. Mm-hmm. And as I said to you when I came out, I did this because to honor your mother, because mm-hmm. she was very principled, and she would honor my coming out. I don't know that she'd like it because of the difficulty and the feelings that she would have had to go through, um, having to acknowledge that to the community. Yeah. But on the other hand, she would applaud the honesty. And the gift is when you come out, at least for me, was that no longer was I hiding and I realized that hiding was affecting every decision I made um, because it, it was just a, an instant that I'd kind of like, well, if my banker knew I was gay, how would he react to me? Because yeah. is his religion going to trump my getting a loan? You know, is his belief mm-hmm. that I'm going to go to hell and I, he doesn't want to deal with a gay, gay CEO, mm-hmm. gay owner? Mm-hmm. Um, it was in every decision I made. So um, I came out and then spent probably the next two years adjusting to it yeah because it was it was a difficult adjustment but at the same time I never would change that decision what was interesting to, for me um, was experiencing and in, in those couple of years was actually experiencing you and what I perceived as the questions you're asking the the things that you're going through as if you were like 14 15 16 again going through puberty oh yeah was you, not so much puberty, but was just kind of like stepping into a new sense of identity. Right. That you hadn't really, and so even though you were 62, 63 at the time, I saw some of the conversations of being like, these are things that I asked myself when I was 13, 14, 15. Right. I thought it was interesting, you know? Yeah. And then, not to make it wrong or right, I think it was just like a process that you probably didn't fully get to embrace until you were in your 60s. Well, it was interesting in that, in this particular case, I thought I knew the world that I was coming into. You know, I was basically leaving the hetero world, being honest with the hetero world and saying I'm gay mm-hmm. and going into the gay community, which I thought I un- understood. And I, had, frankly, I had no idea. The gay <laughs> mu- movement was much more... Um, advanced? Or? Advanced, yeah. They, they had come a long way since the 60s when you know, uh, the New York uprisings came yeah. and uh, every became publicly... Uh, Acceptable. The public was aware, not acceptable. They had yeah. to fight for that acceptance, yeah, yeah. but it took years and years and years. Yeah. Like the blacks, yeah. like any um, minority yeah. who's fighting for their equal rights. Right. So I got into this community, and then it was kind of, I was like 16 and 60 at the same time because it was all new and it was fascinating. and um, It was just a, a huge adjustment. But I had friends that actually kind of helped me through the whole thing. Yeah. Other Which, friends who were gay as well. That had come out, yes, as well. Kind of some older, some younger. <clears throat> it was interesting, too, in, the, in what we've talked about, uh, men that you've met, I just think it's still fascinating how many of them still are in the closet. 
Oh, yeah, lots are. Lots are. Sure. Out of fear, again, of the same exact things. Are they going to lose their job? Are they going to lose, you know, love of their parents? You know, there's... Respect to the community. Respect to the community. Religious, tons of religious shame. Um, So it just goes to say, I think that's why it's... I think it's... I'm I'm grateful that we're talking about because I think it's... And I've got a lot of buddies who are in in Denver that I've met who are all gay. and uh, Well, not they're all gay. (laughs) The, the, The gay buddies that I have that are in Denver... They all have their different, unique story to coming out and still right. working through. Just as we all have our own challenges of just finding our own way, straight or heterosexual in life, I just think it adds a, a different, uh, a different interesting lens or chapter through which you've lived later on in life than a lot of quote unquote kids who are coming out in their teenage years now. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, you came out. 50 years later, if you right. will, right? Right. So it's just a long time to to kind of live, uh, live kind of, or, or, or suppress a part of you out of fear. Right. It's got to be really, really tough. And I think that's, I, I'm going to honor you. I think that. that's, I think that's, that's really why tough. most people come out is they don't want to suppress it. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, there are so many good examples today of people coming out and, getting positive response. Yeah. But I still know people that are coming out is with some recently where the the son is coming out and the, the dad is having a horrible time with it because right. of his beliefs. Right. Um, so. You know, I think there are lots of similarities uh, is the reasons why we come out, but every story is different. Totally. And families divorce their children, they throw them out uh, when they find out they're gay. Other ones, others like mine, my mother said, I just want you to be happy, mm-hmm. you know, that, which was basically embracing just me, just embracing me as an pr- individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's also a, a big misunderstanding by a lot of the people that gay is an option. This is something that we're opting into. Mm-hmm. This is not an option. This, for me, and maybe it is for some, so I can't speak for all, but I, I got to tell you, the majority of the people I deal with that are gay have all told me and confirmed basically the same experience that I had, that we're born gay. There's something different about us. We mm-hmm. knew it early on, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we transitioned into being gay men. And a lot of guys that hide, I think they're still transitioning. They might say they're bisexual, but they're transitioning to being gay. Transitioning maybe even just accepting Accepting. In their mind. Accepting themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is probably a big part of the based oppression or the, re- or the rejection based off of beliefs, based off of their own shame or, right. you know, how things are supposed to be, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's uh, a worthy point that you make. Um, you know, oftentimes the conflicts that arise from people being honest are based on beliefs. Mm-hmm. Not principles, not facts, but based on beliefs. Right. And, you know, if churches... And religions were to deal with facts and principles rather than establishing or continuing to reinforce beliefs, yeah. we might have a different outcome. Right. But for those parents that have a child that comes out, if they if they have such strong belief that that's immoral, that their child is going to go to go to hell and so <clears> forth, <throat> it makes it incredibly difficult. And it's no longer about the child; it's more about them. Mm-hmm. And when, when it stops being about them, when it stops being about the child that's coming out as gay and it has to do with the parent and being all concerned about themselves, 
they miss the opportunity to support and love that child mm. into being all he can be or she can be. Yeah, I think you you hit the the nail on the head. At least in my my personal opinion, which you know I could be proven otherwise uh, in the future. But as of right now, I feel like anyone who has a problem, at least what I've experienced with you, it's really more about them. It's really more about them not accepting or it goes against their beliefs. It goes against their, it's it's their choosing to be right over their beliefs than to be happy in their relationship with you. Yes. And, and as a result, like it's, our relationship is really not difficult whatsoever. Nope. Because I don't have, at least for me, I don't attempt to control anything about you or to control my rightness about your lifestyle. Right. It's not for me. I'm I'm straight. Yep. I'm into women. Like, okay, so so whoever you sleep with behind closed doors, that's, that's so not my business. Right. Even though I ask you about it. <laughs> In some sense of like, hey, how are things going with so-and-so? Or how are things right. going? Like, I actually do care to inquire like how your relationships are going, yeah, you know. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately I all all I've ever wanted as a as a little boy or as a son and as a man now is to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be shown interest in, right. you know, to feel safe, you know. Validated. Validated. Yeah, and I and ultimately happy. want to do the same thing with you, which is like I don't I don't care as long as you feel safe and validated and happy and seen at least by your this son by right. me, you know, right. that's, that's all I really care about. Cause I think the rest is, uh, is a lot of ego that shows up, you know, in someone wanting to, to prove their beliefs and values right over expressing love towards you. You know, after Sally passed, your mom passed, I started traveling and I've never stopped traveling. <laughs> and while I traveled, I, I sampled all kinds of religious perceptions, yeah. uh, and gained Great insight, you know. Having spent most of my life in one um, one sect of religion and strong, having strong beliefs, I've really seen that those beliefs have been validated mm -hmm. and expanded and proven by everything else I've been exposed to. Now, had I not traveled and not sampled all that, I wouldn't be nearly as um, I don't want to say liberally minded. I would say more um, less judgmental. I'm mm -hmm. less judgmental because I realize that um, there's so much more to spiritual growth metaphysics than I ever believed before, mm. and now I see it and I actually get to experience it and demonstrate it in my own own uh, life. And when we do that, um, it, it it the result is what you just said. You are basically, you know, you're non-judgmental. You know, you're happy for the person. You validate the person. You, you you have this mutual give and take without any judgment. Well, there's judgment there. Don't get me wrong. There's judgment there because I judge. Is that right for me? Mm -hmm. No. So I judge that enough to be like, but I don't judge it as far as to then make you wrong. Right. You right. know, like I don't I don't care. You do you. Yeah. I'm gonna do me. But I judge it. I think that's where some people are like, oh no no judgment. And we all get it. We're on this train of like no judgment whatsoever, as if we're supposed to be completely neutral to all things. Right. Like, no, I can judge whether or not drinking a Coke is good or bad for me. Right. Right. And thus, like, I probably don't think it's, it's, it's not right for you, listener, to be drinking tons of Coca-Cola. And yet at the same time, I'm not going to judge you so much that we can't be friends 
because you drink Coke, you know. Right. It's the same type of thing where, yes, I, I judge it from the standpoint of, you know, your lifestyle isn't my lifestyle and vice versa, but you're certainly entitled to happiness and the pursuit of freedom and everything else in yours, and I'm not going to hold it against you in any, any way, shape, yeah. or form. Does that make sense? When your grandmother said to me, I just want you to be happy, Yeah. I thought, boy, that's that's the best answer anybody could give, and it was coming from my mother. Mm-hmm. You know, she could have said, you know, I think it's horrible, you're going to go to hell. Yeah. How would that make me feel yeah. as her child? But instead, she said, I'd just like to see you happy. And I thought, how sweet is that? The most generous, loving thing she could possibly say was, I just want to see you happy. And she left it at that. Now, later she had questions. Yeah. You know, she wanted to know, would I get married? And... Uh, Remarried uh, to a woman. I thought she meant to a woman, and she meant. I said, "Do you mean to a man?" And she said, "Yes, I mean to a man." And I said, well, "Yeah, of course I would. You know, if he looked good in a white dress." And so, I, <laughs> so she, she panicked. She She's panicked. on the phone. She didn't know what to say. She was totally lost. And I, yeah. I started to laugh. She's not judgmental until you said no, that joke. No, she wasn't ready for that. I lo- I love to tease her. She had a great sense of humor. And she <laughs> she made herself vulnerable often, and I just run through that opportunity and nail it. Yeah, it was so much fun. She's a hoot. She's a hoot. Oh man, that's so funny. That's yeah, so she's funny. a good woman. She's a good woman. Everybody loved her. She was very accepting. Yeah. Yeah. We we uh, we joked because you and I, mom, went and saw the producers at one point, right, on Broadway, and that was probably one of my very favorite shows because I had no idea what I was stepping into. I thought I was stepping into a, a Les Mis or a Phantom of the Opera. I had no, no idea. idea what the right. producers was, and the next thing you know, I'm watching you know a, a tilted mirror with this gay. Hitler in the middle of a of a moving the swastika. Yes, the movie. <laughs> While he's staring up in the mirror out of the crowd, and I was, I could not stop laughing. It was the funniest show I've ever seen. It is. The but then there's show. also the other gay guys who are, and there's that. That's the line where it comes from: "Keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it gay." Yeah, right. right. Yes. But I didn't make the connection because you said that at mom's, <laughs> mom's funeral, mom's celebration of life at the very end of it. You know. I was in tears, but and I think you were just nervous, or you were. I was very nervous. You were nervous. You were caught up in the moment, as we all were, and you said something about keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it gay. <laughs> and I remember looking up through my tears and just being like, "What? <laughs> what did you just say?" But now that I get it, it actually makes that moment even better for me, <laughs> which is why I often just send you random gifts of humor. Was always the the. Uh, weapon I carried that would break the mesmerism. The mesmerism at that moment was emotionally, we were losing Sally. We were <clears> losing her. She was gone. Yeah. And the audience, 400 people were moaning, but we were looking for celebration, celebrating a wonderful life and the contribution that she made. So it was somewhat light, but I thought a little bit more humor wouldn't hurt. So <laughs> the story I told was based, you know, the story I told about Sally was all based on humor too. Well, yeah, not only that, but that was... <clears throat> I had spoken right before you, right? Because right? all the kids went in order and they skipped me because I was a complete mess. Ball at that of, point. Yeah, hot mess. And then I was, I jumped up there real quick to say something, and all I did was pretty much cry my eyes out. Um, so, and I think it, it was it. interesting. Yeah, a couple of years later, someone thanked me and said, you know, like all your, I can't thank you enough because all of your siblings got up there and they were all pretty much had their shit together. Not a single tear came, although Molly got emotional. Um, but then we were like, we were mourning your mom, the loss of your mom. 
and yet even her children had their stuff together. So it wasn't until you got up there, me, Johnny, and just let it all come out, and it was snotty, it was hot mess, it was gross, it was, you know, and I don't even remember what I said, I just came, it came from the heart. Yeah. She's like, that gave the entire congregation permission to mourn, right? you know, in their right. own way. And That's she's like, and there wasn't a single dry eye in the whole place. And that was when I learned, and I've done a podcast on this, that's when I learned the power of vulnerability. Right. You know? It was like, I just, I I gave up what I looked at, what I looked like, I could care less what, you know, did I have all my shit together? And like, I could, uh, it wasn't even a thought in my mind. Right. I just was letting it out because I had repressed it for that whole week. Yeah. I was numb from when you told me that mom had passed until that week later when we did our celebration of life ceremony. So I think after I spoke, it was, (laughs) the energy was so somber and sad I think you were also kind of using that comment to try to lighten it up lighten things up a little bit which but you know I think it's awesome that you actually got up there in spite of your tears because most people wouldn't because they think that's a sign of um, a lack of masculinity or lack of strength or lack of courage whatever it is but the, the audience doesn't interpret it that way as you know they see it as strength they see it as courage to get up there and just be yourself be yeah. vulnerable yeah. and I thought that was really fabulous that you did that well I appreciate it I do feel like that's a big part of this podcast too because I don't you know I'd rather bear you know the, the reality of things than try to pretend like oh I've got a podcast for quote unquote becoming kings men becoming real men and and yet my approach is like <laughs> men becoming real men is showing that we don't have our shit together yeah you know and then loving ourselves through it anyways Right. Which is kind of the same way that I wanted to support you in your journey, yep. you know, through life. Yep. So, I, I don't know. I just can't. Uh, <clears throat> I've had to face a lot of shame and, you know, even getting a divorce. I was pretty tough and various other things, you know, in my life. I don't know. I still don't know if it. Oh, again, not to compare, not to judge in that sense, but like coming out when you're 60 something, when you have. And you did have a lot of friends who were like, all right. See ya. Yep. You haven't really talked to them since, nope. you know? Nope. Because that was their choice. And I just think that's that's kind of, it's, it's shitty on some regards. And I also have empathy for, like, that's just where they are right now. That's exactly the point. Um, yep. Love them where they're at. Love them where, love they're, where at. they're at. But I think it's also yep. just a huge, that's just a huge shift in one's identity, you know? And it takes so much courage and cojones to be able to actually come out and go for it. But I have seen you be so much happier and has opened the door to so much personal growth. Like you said, you've gone to India, you've done, we've done meditation retreats, we've done like so many things that I couldn't even imagine was even within your wheelhouse 15 years ago. Well, thanks to you, we got into the self-awareness study through Tony Robbins. Yeah. Started that in uh, probably 2007 or eight. No, I, I went to, in 2009 was my first UPW, so, so it was actually that 2009 2010 10. was when So it's been 12 went. years for me. Yeah. Of self-awareness yeah. study, yeah. which has changed my whole life. Yeah, totally changed my life. You know, somebody said, I guess maybe Tony was. He said the most horrible story would be for someone to be financially successful and not be aware of who they really are. Yeah, not have any self-awareness. Yeah, and I thought the self-awareness values, um, the the values that it teaches. Um, pay incredible dividends the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was so thrilled that you all getting into this while you were younger because mm-hmm. you have so many years to affect your life in a positive way be through your self-awareness. Yeah. And I think 
probably 97% of the country doesn't invest in self-awareness. They don't know. They don't, they don't know who they are. They don't know why relationships fail or work. Right. They don't put in the, the time to understand it all and ultimately they shortchange their lives. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I think that's, that's, the, that's why things changed. The trajectory of my life changed when I first had that aha. I was like, oh my gosh, here's Tony Robbins who I feel like has kind of given us the cheat codes, <laughs> the life hack yeah. to fulfillment. You know, I've had a life coach probably now for five or seven, probably seven years now. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've not missed a week, probably, uh, I probably missed six weeks or eight weeks over that period. Yeah. And we have a 45-minute phone conversation, and we, I always have an aha moment. Mm. I always have an aha moment. Mm. I'm thinking, when am I going to reach the top? <laughs> why, why, why am I having to learn this either over and over again or yeah. something new? Yeah. And, you know, as your life changes and relationships changes, business changes you're you know i'm 74 years old now um you know a different period in my life different different opportunities come or challenges and they all need to be thought through differently and uh what worked at 25 years old or 35 years old or 40 years old right. doesn't work the same at 74 years old 75 right. years old right. so i'm really grateful that i've spent that time and continue to spend that in the time and money to understand myself better and it helps me grow all my the key relationships in my life closer. Yeah. Build them stronger. Validates what I do right. It highlights what I'm doing wrong. Right. And I can make corrections, course corrections, as you say, uh, all the way along, which is a gift. Uh, and I think it's that's that speaks to those men and women who listen to this podcast who are in that upper echelon of three percent or one percent who are yeah. open to listening to a podcast that's about personal growth, you know, um, and I think it's valuable for, for me to sit down with you as we wrap things up with this podcast because it's, you know, <clears throat> the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in, in many regards, you know, yep. uh, and a lot of who I am as a result of, you know, your mom's uh, tutelage, uh, <laughs> guidance. We have a lot to be grateful for. Yeah, for sure, but, but I also can see like, oh, like, there's there's no point in avoiding getting into the things that are really difficult, you know, or healing the areas of my life that are where there's repressed emotion. Yep. Because it's not like I'm gonna uh, get out of not not focusing on those. Like those things are gonna rear their ugly heads over and over and over again if I don't uh, if I don't get into it. So. Anyways, I appreciate you being on the podcast. So glad to be here. It was a great opportunity to have this conversation. Always learn something new. <laughs> so appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the, the podcast episode with, with my dad. And I uh, hope you got a good laugh here and there out of it because we <laughs> certainly did. But we'll look forward to catching up with you on the next episode of the Becoming Kings podcast. I'm your host, Johnny King. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. That's it for this one, and I want to thank you for listening. Hey, if you got some good ideas from this episode and you want more, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast. And if you think others may benefit from it also, share it on social media and tag me in your post so I can say hey. It would also mean a lot to me if you felt inclined to write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts since I read every single one of them. And if you've got any questions or topics that you'd like to recommend, or really just anything that you think I could improve upon, man, I thrive on constructive feedback. So hit me up with an email at podcast at johnnyking.com. 
Oh, and feel free to also subscribe to my YouTube channel, connect with me on LinkedIn, and follow me on Instagram at Johnny King and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Johnny King Men's Coach. Thanks again for joining me. I'll catch you next time.